that need to get under our belts as we understand uh, you're going to be surprised by some of the things that uh, are going to come out today. And, uh, but I hope you can stay with me. I had trouble staying with my notes as I prepared for them. But let's go through and we'll begin with a word of prayer and uh, sing the word of God set to music. And after that, a moment of silence, and then we'll get into our text. Uh, Lord, we uh, thank you for life, and we're grateful that we're still here and uh, able to consider eternal things, heavenly things, spiritual things, while we're in this material world. We pray that we will have your spirit with us to guide us, uh, keep us humble before you, and uh, set our pride aside, and let your spirit work in us and among others. And help us to understand some of the concepts that we're going to talk about today. So we seek you, Lord, and we need you in all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One, two, three, four. Thank you. 
Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart.
Okay. Last week we covered the first uh, six chapters, first six verses of chapter eight. And remember, this is the unsealing of the, of the last seal, which uh, displays to us the opening of the first seven trumpets. They're kind of overlapping. It says, and when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of a half an hour. And I saw, John says, the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it upon with it, that he should, that he should offer it with, that's one of the trumpets. <laughs> that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it to the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Now, we touched on these and how these concepts related to types in the Old Testament. Moses going up to the mount and lightnings and thunderings, etc. cetera. Uh, but there are a few things I failed to mention, and I, I think it's important to bring them forward to us, to have them on the table, so to speak, so we can choose to add them to the recipe or not. Uh, first of all, in the Old Testament, and we touched on this, the presence of God, the Jews called it the Shekinah glory, uh, uh, or the glory cloud. In the Old Testament, that's how they would talk about God being with them. Uh, it was believed that that glory cloud was ever present in the most holy place over the temp in the temple. That means the Holy of Holies, that Shekinah glory was there, above the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament temple. Now listen, during the 6th century BC, before the destruction of Solomon's temple, Ezekiel saw the glory cloud, which was believed to always be over the ark, depart from the temple and travel east to the Mount of Olives. And this is recorded in Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 18 through 19, and chapter 11, verses 22 through 23. Interestingly enough, we have a similar event reported in secular history in 66 AD. And, uh, and this was before the destruction of the temple. So Old Testament, we have the Shekinah glory leaving before the destruction of Solomon's temple. And in the New Testament, in 66 AD, we have secular history suggesting that that glory left the temple mount on Mount Moriah. In Josephus' War of the Jews, he records what appears to be the departure of that Shekinah glory from the most holy place. He says, quote, at that feast, which we call Pentecost of AD 66, as the priests were going by night into the inner temple, they felt a quaking and heard a great noise. And after that, they heard a sound as of a great multitude saying, let's remove hence, let's leave this place. They heard a multitude say, let's leave. So the fact that a supernatural voice declared that it was leaving the temple points strongly to the departure of the Shekinah glory that happened in Ezekiel's day. That it would move, not in Ezekiel's day, but happened when the Shekinah glory left the temple mount in the, in the Old Testament. The departure of the Lord from the temple is also described by uh, Tacitus. He is a pagan historian. He wrote, quote, a sudden lightning flash from the clouds lit up the temple. The doors of the holy place abruptly opened. A superhuman voice was heard to declare that the gods were leaving it. That's how a pagan would say it. And in the same instant came the rushing tumult of their departure. A sound as if things were leaving. That's from the mouth of a, of a pagan uh, historian. So there's that. Also, the pillar of smoke and, and uh, by day and the fire by night that guided the Hebrew slaves during the Exodus 
was another manifestation of God's glory with them, all right? So let me quote to you from, it's from the Midrash Rabbah Lamentations Proems 25. And it's a Jewish rabbi named Jonathan who wrote this. And he may have been present at the destruction of Jerusalem. I can't say he was, but he may have been. When the glory of the Lord departed from the temple and for three and a half years abode on Mount of Olives. So 66 to 70s, three years right in there. We have that time period of about three and a half years. You hear three and a half years talked about when it comes to Revelation and the Antichrist and all that, which we'll get to down the line. But bottom line, um, this rabbi in the Midrash Rabbi Lamentations Proems 25 says that, quote, for three and a half years abode on the Mount of Olives, hoping that Israel would repent, but they did not. While the Bet Kol, the voice of God, issued forth announcing, quote, return, O backsliding children, that's fulfilling Jeremiah 3.14, return unto me and I will return unto you, that's fulfillment of Malachi 3.7, and when they did not repent, that voice said, I will return to my place. That's fulfilling Hosea 5.15. That I will return to my place. I have called to you. I've sent my son, et cetera, et cetera. I'm returning to my place. And the Shekinah glory departs out of the uh, uh, place. There's one more that we need to address um, that I've neglected to lay out last week as plainly as possible in our discussion. And in the past, I have always associated the events of blowing the trumpets and pouring the vials as occurring before Jesus comes, second coming is what we call it, and rescues his church and takes his bride with him to heaven. I've always, in my mind, I've always thought this and taught that these things are building up to 70 AD when he returned to a futurist, when he will return, and that all these things will happen prior. Um, I've specifically dated that coming as 70 AD. Um, it's only partially the truth, and, and we'll try to explain this. Revelations chapter 8, which we're in, verse 5, and Revelation 14, 14 through 18, imply that the parousia, that is a Greek word, parousia, parousia of Christ, uh, which we say means the second coming of Christ, and we'll get to this point, was expected to occur before the start of the vials or the trumpets. Before, okay? So there are signs that were leading up to it, but had Jesus returned is the question. And we're just gonna talk about this from the uh, preterist eschatology. Thank you, Lord. Now, when we get to Revelation 19, it describes for us what Jesus' triumphant return is going to look like. That's the chapter in Revelation where we get the second coming described, Revelation 19. But it fits so nicely right here before the trumpets and the vials and everything are unleashed. And this would have all occurred in 66 AD, right before the beginning of the Jewish war, followed by the subsequent release of the seven plagues in Revelation. So why say this? Okay, if we take all <clears throat> the descriptions found here in Scripture and then also the descriptions of pagan and non-Christian historians and the things they've written, Jesus Christ led an angelic army in the clouds over Israel in an appearance that seems to literally fulfill Revelation 19, which talks about his second coming. And it also fulfills 2 Thessalonians 1.7 before the unleashing of the vials or trumps upon the land. In other words, what I'm suggesting is that what we, if you're a futurist, futurists are broken up into different categories. Some are pre-trib, that the, before the tribulation, uh, the church will be taken up, believers will be taken up. And then there's post-trib. That means after the tribulation, believers will be taken up. Well, all we're doing is taking that thinking and assigning it back to our understanding of end times in uh, Revelation and Jesus returning with the destruction of Jerusalem. 
we are, I am suggesting that he came prior to the unveiling of the trumpets and the uh, veils. And when I say he returned, we're looking at 66 prior to the Roman Jewish War, and he remained, understand this, he remained until 70 AD. We'll talk about why that would be the case in talking about this period of time. Okay, so <laughs> one month after the mysterious light shone from the temple altar, that's on the 8th of Nisan, AD 66, that Josephus and Tacitus wrote about, this light and this voice from heaven speaking, uh, there are reports in secular history of an army of angels like those Jesus leads in Revelation 19 appearing in the clouds. So let's talk about this view. We remember Jesus said to Caiaphas um, when he was being tried and he was standing before Caiaphas, he said, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. In Mark 14, 61, 62, it says, Jesus is standing before him, he says, but he held his peace and answered nothing. And the high priest asked Jesus and said, art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? This is a different translation than the King James. And Jesus said, you ready? This is what he said, now listen to this, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power. That's one thing he says. That's what you'll see. And you could add, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. That's two things he tells him he'll see. I've always just passed over that and likened them. But it's also troubled me. Why does he say, you'll see me sitting on the right hand of the power of God? here and then also coming in the clouds. That's two different things. And I've always wondered why does he put those together and say and these two things to a man living back then with Jesus in his day. So I take them as literal and as true. Jesus said it to them. You will see, right? So as stated in Revelation 19, Jesus comes riding on a white horse leading an army of angels on horseback from the clouds is how it's described. An eerie similar event is recorded by Josephus to have occurred uh, in the month of Iyar of AD 66 before the start of the worst war in, Roman, in Jewish Roman history, Israel's war with Rome. Josephus said, on the 21st day of the month of Artemis, that's Iyar, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable, were it not related by those that saw it, and were not the events that followed it of so considerable nature as to deserve such signals. For before sunsetting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds and surrounding the cities this is a this is a jewish guy writing the history and he says i would consider this a fable but were it not related by those who saw it and they saw exactly what jesus told caiaphas you will see coming in the clouds and coming, as other scripture says, with the armies of heaven, angels through the clouds, right? Very similar description of what Revelation 19 says about Jesus' return at his second coming. Uh, Tacitus also records something similar to that. The first century pagan, he says, quote, in the sky appeared a vision of armies in conflict of glittering armor. Not the same words as Josephus, but Tacitus, in another account, in the skies appeared the armies in conflict. This is pure preterist view. This is, it's occurred then, and we don't need to continue to look for it now. The medieval, I love this background dr drama. <laughs> Either that or I'm going to be struck by lightning. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't laugh about that. Uh, the medieval Jewish historian Sefer Yasapan. He expounds upon this angelic army in the sky of 66 AD. Now remember, in the second coming of Christ, he was coming with those uh, horsed angelic 
beings, and he was going to lead them in the clouds. This is 66. Jerusalem wasn't destroyed. The temple wasn't destroyed till 70. So that's why I'm saying I think that the second coming starts in 66 and continues 67, 68, 69, 70. And we always think, I have always thought second coming. He's here, it's over, and done, right? Not so. And we're going to use scripture to show that it was more of him being about and seeing of some as he's there overseeing the final destruction. We'll talk about that. But the, the medieval uh, Jewish historian Sefer Yasapan, he says, quote, Moreover, in those days were seen chariots of fire and horsemen, a great force flying across the sky. This is the third witness I'm giving you that, are, that is... People always say, well, where are people who say this, this stuff happens? Here are three witnesses of this very thing. Flying across the sky, near to the ground, coming against Jerusalem and all the land of, Gia, of Judah, all of them horses of fire and riders of fire. Okay? So the parallel between the three accounts and then Revelation 19 are striking. And because Revelation 19 speaks of the resurrection, even though, remember, we've said Re Revelation is not um, chronological. It, it, it uh, pro not propitiates, wow. It uh, recapitulates upon itself. It, it says things out of order, and it's telling kind of a, a grand panoply of events. And so just because it's in chapter 19 doesn't mean we're going to have this happen, this happen, this happen, 19 tells us. That's not really how it is seen. Okay, so the parallels between those accounts are striking. However, in Yosepan's account, we can see how 2 Thessalonians 1.7 was literally fulfilled in AD 66. There, Paul wrote to the believers, let me read that to you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire... That's what Yosepan quoted. He said they were beings and horses of flaming fire. Okay, G uh, Paul says this is what it will look like. Taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yosepan adds the fact that this angelic army in the sky of 66 AD was composed of uh, a cavalry of fire and that completely fulfills 2 Thessalonians 1.7. So often people say, well, you teach this, but nobody ever left anything that said they saw this or saw that. We're getting to some of those things that were left. Um, by the way, angelic armies in the sky of fire fulfilled description of the coming of the Lord. I'm not going to read them to you. In Isaiah 66, 15, if you're taking notes, Psalm 68, 17, and Habakkuk or Habakkuk in 3, 1 through 8. All of those describe the coming of the Lord as coming with fire. Now, of course, the futurists say that's atomic explosions that we're going, you know, I mean, I'm preaching on a day when just a day or two ago, we had North Korea say they're going to send a bomb over and hit Guam or nearby Guam. And we have our president in the U.S. saying he's going to send it back. So it's understandable to, to think maybe it's having to do with our day and it's with fire. I get that. But... The first application, without a doubt, here is then and at that time. So, interestingly, the fiery angelic army of horsemen and charioters of AD, uh, of AD 66 is not the first time a specter is recorded like this in Scripture. And I just gave you those references, but let me read to you 2 Kings 6.17 and its description of angelic beings in the skies. And Elisha, Elisha prayed, Elisha, Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee in his eyes that he may see. And the Lord... Hey, this is terrifying. <laughs> and the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses, horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Elisha. So chariots of fire, people of fire, horses of fire, all the way back in 2 Kings. According to Acts 9, 3 through 6 and Revelation 1, remember we covered Revelation 1 when John, he has a vision of Jesus, and it's not the Jesus he saw ascend up into heaven. 
He has a vision of a Jesus that is a completely different being. John doesn't even say, and this was Jesus. He doesn't really seem to even know who it was in Revelation 1. It was just a, a, a being of fire, right? And, and that coincides here with 2 Kings 6 and, 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 and 2 Corinthians 11, 14, and Matthew 28, 2 through 3. So why did the angels of 2 Kings 6, 17 and those described by Yasapan of AD, uh, AD 66 appear as beings of fire? Why does 2 Thessalonians 1.7 that I read imply that Jesus was going to take on a form that was blazing fire during his second coming? That's, that's, that's the description. It doesn't, the angels said, hey, listen, you're going to see him return in the way he came. Many people think that's with his physical body the same way, but I think he's saying he's going to come through the clouds in the same way, and he's going to return in the clouds, but it's always in flaming fire. Through, though Jesus' resu resurrected body strongly resembled his physical body while he was still on earth, it appears to have changed when he enters into heaven and sits at the right hand of the glory of God. And uh, after he ascends Acts 1, we don't see him described anymore. Even Paul, when he had his vision of Jesus, saw a light and heard a voice and said, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus, the one you're kicking against. It was a bright light, supposedly that blinded, well, not supposedly, blinded Paul, and everyone else turned their eyes. So we're talking about a different creature, a different representation of Jesus than what we had when he walked the earth. And we rarely speak of this, but Scripture does, as in Acts 9, 3 through 6, and Revelation 1, 13 through 6. After his ascension, Jesus' body as it is described throughout the remainder of the Bible, it resembles the biblical uh, view in the Old Testament of what the children of Israel would see when God would visit them. And no longer do we have him uh, looking, feet needing to be washed and, and these things. He was different, right? Ezekiel 1, 26, 28 describes a vision of God in which, like the descriptions of Jesus in Acts 9 and in, and in Revelation 1, 13, 16, God is in his brilliance. Listen to what it says. And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne, and as the appearance of a sapphire stone, and upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man upon it. And I saw the color of amber, and as the appearance of fire round about within it and the appearance of his loins even upward and from the appearance of his loins even downward i saw as it were the appearance of fire it's all fire and it had the brightness round about this concurs with with all these descriptions and the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud of the day of rain so was the appearance of the brightness round about this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face and I heard a voice of one that spake. Consistent, 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 all the way through the biblical narrative of what you see with an angelic being, uh, God, Christ, clearly echoes the descriptions of Jesus in Revelation that John saw and gave to us in that first chapter, but also 2 Kings and Matthew and 2 Corinthians. Matthew 28, 2 through 3 says, An angel of the Lord descended from heaven. His appearance was like lightning. There's another reference to what, what people, resurrected people, what angels, what deity looks like when it comes among us. Lightning, bright, white, a different dimension altogether. Nothing like what we're in. 2 Corinthians 1, 11, 14 echoes Matthew 28 and says, And no wonder Satan himself masquerades as an angel of darkness. No, he masquerades as an angel of light. That's a realm of light. We would call Christ's body, after having been risen uh, to heaven, is pictured in that similar fiery... Uh, it says, I'm just going to read it in Revelation 1. John says, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. 
The hair on his head was white like wool and white as snow, and his eyes were as blazing fire, okay? His feet were bronze glowing as in a furnace. This is like the skin has been illuminated and is like bronze uh, heated up to that red glowing point in a furnace. And his voice was the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he had seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. We're preparing for an uh, eclipse that's going to come over the U.S., full eclipse. They're giving glasses because you're not even, one little bit of it, you're not even supposed to look because it will damage your eyes. And, and here, John is saying, this is what Jesus is. A complete glory, right? So after his ascension into heaven, Jesus' resurrected body was glorified that it resembled the God of the Old Testament, the Theophanies, his Shekinah glory that would shine over into the temple. We also note something interesting in 2 Peter 1, chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Peter's description then, this is way later in his epistle, not in the gospel, Peter describes what happened during the transfiguration, right? And during the transfiguration, Jesus appeared to the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and in a likeness of being in light. And what is interesting about the description of the transfiguration is that the Greek word there used to describe this is parousia, okay? That's the word that we translate as second coming. Well, parousia is used here is to refer to what was happening on the Mount of Transfiguration. The fact that Peter uses the word parousia to describe the moment in which Jesus was transformed into a being of light implies that Peter may have seen the transfiguration as a visionary shadow of the, of the second coming to come. That he was using that term to, to show, this is, this is, tell us, this is what it's gonna look like, this is what it will be. I saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration, bright, radiant glory, and maybe that's in accordance with the model or the description that Eusipian gave us uh, a number of years later. But this is how Peter says it in his epistle. It's in 1 Peter, uh, 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. He says, as an old man now, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received glory and honor from God the Father, when he received glory and honor from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. Quote, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter there refers back to the Mount of Transfiguration and says, listen, when he received, and he hadn't got it yet when he was ascending up, but when he received that glory and honor from the Father, we heard this being said. Um, it should also be noted that this is not the only way in which the transfiguration is a model of the second coming. In Matthew 17:5, the glory cloud that we talked about, the Shekinah glory, also appeared in the midst of the transfiguration. And we read in Matthew's account, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed Moses and, uh, and, and uh, Jesus and Elijah overshadowed them and behold, the voice of the cloud said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, listen to him. So though scripture never identifies Jesus as the one who's leading the armies through the clouds, uh, and neither does the secular history, of course, uh, it is predicted that in all the predictions of the second coming that he would come with them and it's just assumed he will be the one who's leading them. If this supernatural event did in fact occur, which literally fulfills Revelation 19 and all other biblical descriptions that we've talked about, then Jesus must have been at the head of the army in the clouds. A few more things and uh, to add to our palette of discussing this stuff. Jesus said, as lightning comes from the east to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So will, all right? According to Tacitus, 
Lightning struck the temple around the time of the second coming in fulfillment of Matthew 24, 27, when Jesus said that. Lightning came. That's something to consider. This verse seems to suggest that lightning was marking the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds. Historical evidence that lightning may have accompanied his coming at the start of the Jewish revolt in 66 AD is provided by the first century Roman historian Tacitus again, who said, quote, in the sky appeared a vision of armies in conflict, a glittering armor. A sudden lightning flash from the clouds lit up the temple. The doors of the holy place abruptly opened. A superhuman voice was heard to declare that the gods were leaving it. And in the same instance came a rushing tumult of their departure. That brings all those quotes together from him. The heavenly armor recorded by Tacitus literally fulfills all biblical descriptions of the second coming uh, and what it would look like from Matthew 24 on. So it fulfills Matthew 24, Matthew 16, 28, Matthew 10, 23, Mark 8, 38, Mark 14, 61, John 21, 22, and Revelation 1, 7. Uh, and supernatural specter pictures of that appears to be Jesus, the Son of Man, in the presence of a multitude of angels is fulfilled in Matthew 16, uh, 27, Mark 8, 38, and on and on. We just go on with these scriptural references. So the event was accompanied by lightning, and that fulfilled Matthew 24. Uh, so all of this happens according to history and tying in what, script, what scripture says before the Jewish-Roman War in 66 AD. And the fulfillment of 1 Thessalonians 4.16, this army was seen the same year. So there was said, and this is a very weird quote to me. I'm going to read it to you, but it's very strange. But Nero, and the, the historian said that Nero was digging a canal in 66 AD. And while they were digging this canal, they heard a trumpet and they saw things coming up out of the ground. Now, uh, a few days or weeks after the army was seen in the clouds at the start of the Jewish, a multitude of spiritual bodies, according to uh, a different, I'm going to give you a different historian, um, Cassius Dio. He is a Roman statesman and a historian. Cassius apparently says, apparently Nero was building a canal, and when they dug into the earth, there was an upheaval that came out of the ground, and these are his words. When the first workers touched the earth, blood sprouted from it, groans and bellowings were heard, and many phantoms appeared. Nero himself thereupon grasped a mattock and by throwing up some of the soil, fairly compelled the rest to imitate him. So he says that at this time, after this lightning is hit and all these things, that emanations were coming up out of the ground that were ghastly and ghostly. In this recorded event, Suetonius indicates that Nero, as he broke the ground, a trumpet was heard. So we're talking about non-Christians, even non-Jews, experiencing all sorts of mystical, uh, wild things at this time that, um, you know, are tough to explain how they are seeing this. And just as a side note, I might as well share this. There's a theory out there. It's, it's, it comes from a book that was written by a guy. I can't think of his name nor the name of the book. But the theory is this that the Flavians, um, we're talking about Josephus, we're talking about Titus, uh, not Josephus, we're talking about Vespasian, Titus, his son, any of the Flavians, what they did was they took all the prophecy of Christ and they constructed the New Testament and they put all of it into a model, including Paul's epistles, everything else, as a means to keep the Jews under their thumb and to stop uprisings and to give them the Messiah they've been looking for. And this is a huge theory that had uh, carried some weight maybe 10 years ago. I think it was 10 years ago. I think it was probably maybe in two, uh, 2010. And there's people, we have a guy who uh, was a sold out Christian 
loved the Lord, changed everything else. Two weeks ago called me, says, I don't believe it anymore. I believe it was the, the Romans. When you read quotes like, like Cassius Dio saying this stuff, it kind of does make you say, this is really weird. I mean, was there a conspiracy? But of course, it doesn't make any real sense because why would they go to the trouble of creating a fictitious gospel in 73 AD after the temple and Jerusalem had been completely crushed in order to keep the Jews under control. It makes no sense to me, but it has, I mean, we're talking, I know this person, he came to campus, no longer Jesus. That's it, done. I don't believe he was a real figure and I think it was a creation by the Flavians. So this kind of inserts that knowledge right in there, which is ridiculous, but I gotta bring it up because it's out there. If you have questions on it, call me or we can email me and we can talk about it. So let's go quickly. First Corinthians 15, 52 says, for the trump will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And Revelation 15, 18 implies that these spirits don't enter heaven until the seven plagues have been fulfilled. So there is some intermediary period. If there were ghosts coming out of the ground at that time, they would not have entered into heaven until all the plagues were done according to Revelation. Um, we take this from 1 Thessalonians 4.16. It says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So this verse reminds us that the second coming would mark uh, the beginning of the resurrection of the dead. That's the beginning of the resurrection of the dead. The fact that Christ is on the clouds in the glory cloud uh, before the release of the seven plagues points to a manifestation of Christ at the beginning of the Jewish war and not just in 70 AD as I have always taught. Uh, I know this has been a lot at this point, but we have to ask this question. Was the second coming in AD 66, or was it in 70? And having asked that question, I want to tell you that's the wrong question to ask. Hang with me, and you'll all explain why. I've told you that that term second coming, it's not found in the New Testament. The only thing we find in the Greek New Testament is parousia. And we take that term and translate it his second advent, his second coming. But parousia in the Greek means something more in almost every case than just me walking through that door and arriving, somebody just arriving. Almost every case in scripture, parousia has a meaning of someone coming and staying, right? So it's used usually in conquering generals, emperors, high-ranking officials who, for an extended stay, they would show up, they would arrive, they would come, and then they would stay for a while and then return to the other place where their seat was or whatever. For example, uh, Nero Caesar's parousia, as it's called, lasted for years when he went to Greece. His parousia, that's the word that's used, meant that he showed up and stayed. Uh, again, the word connotes a coming and an, a staying presence. So when pe people think of the second coming, and they, they don't see that parousia means to show up and stay for a period of time. We often picture, what I've always pictured, a one-time event where he shows up, it's catastrophic, it's beautiful, there's death and there's saving, and it's over. That's when the second coming is, and we just always capture it that way. But again, parousia means something more. Have you ever thought of the second coming as lasting a while, as perhaps his return was uh, going on and continued to be in different ways while he watched the destruction of Jerusalem and gathered his church. So remember an example of parousia, not remember, but an example of parousia being used is when Paul says in Philippians 2.12, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have also obeyed, not at my presence only, but now much more in my absence. That, that phrase, not at my presence only, is parousia. And Paul's presence in Philippi was a long time. So he says, you haven't obeyed only in my long time presence with you, parousia, right? But we continue to assign it to this second coming event like that, not thinking perhaps that maybe Jesus, uh, if he comes in the future to, to placate people, will be around for a while. 
instead of just the singular event, or if the preterist view, he showed up in 66 and continued to manifest himself all the way through till 70 AD. Now, um, I'm beginning to wonder if this is the case. To limit Jesus coming to AD 66 or AD 70 simply implies that Parousia was just that brief one-time visit. But if he did do that, he just showed up once, 66, or showed up and said, Parousia is the wrong word. We would use a different word to say he showed up here in the Greek. But Parousia suggests that he showed up and stayed, you see? So we have some insight into this going back to the words Jesus spoke to Caiaphas in Mark 14, 61, 62. And this is what I've always wondered about. Now try to hear this. Jesus is speaking to the high priest and it says Jesus remained silent and gave him no answer. And again, the high priest asked him and said, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see, blepo, you will see the son of man, one, sitting on the right hand of the mighty and two, coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, if your second coming is a one-time boom, it's happened, what that would mean is that, that, uh, that uh, the high priest would see Jesus sitting and then coming. And it's all just like that. But now when we're starting to understand what parousia means relative to 66 AD and all the signs of it happening then, and yet the fulfillment of that second coming happening in 70, we get the idea that they were seeing perhaps the Son of Man sitting in the clouds next to the right hand of power in his glory, and then they also saw him coming in the clouds with the armies of angels and fiery horses. That starts to make sense now, that, that line. Why did he give both, right? So it smacks of a lingering visit rather than one. Now, what, do we have any other idea in Scripture that this is how God works? Well, if you go to the Old Testament, there are a number of appearances through the Old Testament, Genesis 16, 21, 22, 31, Exodus 3, 17, uh, Judges 6 thir and 13, Daniel 3 and Micah 5, 2, where God visits. He has come, he's established the law through, but God is making visits. He's showing up among his people as he prepares to bring the Messiah, the word made flesh among them. And so while he's engaged with them, he visits them. They call them Christophanies. They call them Theophanies. I don't know where they get the license to call it one or the other. It's just God, but they always try to say, no, that one was Christ and this one was uh, the Father and that was the Holy Spirit. But bottom line, it was the Shekinah glory visiting the nation of Israel and it didn't just happen once. He would come and visit. So this similar pa uh, pattern is found in the New Testament too. And it happens between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, and it happens between his ascension and the parousia. He shows up. Do we, do we just throw out the fact that he showed up to Paul and he, and he appeared to Paul, the Shekinah glory appeared to Paul, or that in Acts chapter, uh, not Acts chapter nine, in other places, he has made himself known and seen between, during, and then John the Baptist, I mean, John the Beloved, he has a vision of Christ. And what does he see? He sees the glory of God. He describes him there. This is before it all starts happening. So just like in the Old Testament, God is making visits. Jesus, too, makes visits before the wrap-up. And I don't see it out of, I don't see it heretical to believe that he could have started the second coming by coming in the clouds as it was suggested by the uh, uh, non-Christian writers in 66 and he continued to make different things occur and happen among them from the clouds among them until the 70 AD destruction recall that throughout the Gospels Jesus said he would soon leave the world to be with his father in heaven and Jesus made good on that promise as he ascended into the clouds and he appears to have stayed in heaven at the right hand of his father uh, Acts 755 and except for a, a couple scattered manifestations and appearances, and he did make those. He left the right hand, if he took his corporal body, and, and he, came, he left the right hand and he came and did things, like with Paul and with John. Uh, Jesus did appear, though, before the end. Now, what many futurists tell me is, well, that was his those weren't his second coming. And that's true because they didn't accompany the signs he gave us in Matthew 24 of what it would look like. But they were part of his 
arrival back. And we have to include those in our understanding of what Christ is doing with his church. Jesus departs from heaven when he is said to come in the clouds of heaven during his second during the parousia at the end of the age. So uh, Psalms 18 says, he the Lord parted the heavens and came down and dark clouds were under his feet, keeping it consistent. Thus parousia appears to be a perfect word to depict Jesus coming in judgment at the time of Israel's first century war with Rome. And that was the beginning of it. And that is when all the uh, histories say, they said they saw this, these horses of fire riding in the clouds. And then after having risen into heaven in Acts 1, Christ later returned to the earth uh, during the Roman Jewish war. And then at the finality of the Roman Jewish war, and I believe probably now he took his church with him at 66 rather than 70. Could be wrong on that. So he appears to have stayed for several years, manifesting himself in diverse and various ways before returning to heaven, his true throne with the saints of the resurrection. Uh, coming in prolonged presence in Palestine from 66 to 70 AD during the war seems to match really well with biblical prophecy and the historical quotes I've given and the word parousia. If you take all that in, in hand in hand, we seem to be making some sense. Once it all wrapped up then with the unleashing of the seals, this is post 66, and the unleashing of the trumpets and the pouring out of the vials, Jesus ultimately returned uh, with all his saints into heaven. At the time he drank wine with them as he promised he would with his bride uh, after that time. Was he truly visible? Perhaps he was visible. Uh, just as God was visible in the Old Testament to, to the children of Israel, uh, to those with eyes to see, as Hebrew says. With Jesus having victory over all things, his parousia was a perfect culminating end of the biblical story. It brings it all together. Not in for us. We learn spiritually and grow. But, and, and what matter did he come? Jesus says in Matthew 16, 27, he would come uh, in the glory of his father. That's what he said. He left not in the glory of his father, but he returned in the glory of his father, bringing full circle him giving the glory, all glory to God. We'll pick it up at, with the trumps, uh, and I mean the trumpets, uh, next week uh, and go from there. Questions or comments? We expect a little bit faster pace. Are you Vanna today? We have a new Vanna. Questions, comments, don't be shy. No mic? Anybody? Nothing? Don't bother, Vanna. No hands are coming up. All right, a couple things really quickly. Next Sunday, 11.30 to 1.30, we're having our open water baptism and hot dog barbecue. Um, and we have a new grill donated by uh, the Jensen's over here we're going to be using. Thank you very much. Adams Road uh, on October 1st will be here. That's a Sunday night. And uh, the McCraney sisters are going to be singing the word together. If you want to join us for that, food will be served as well. Uh, recovery group for people who have addiction tomorrow night start, that started last week here. Very casual, sitting around and talking with people who have been there. And then Thursday night's Bible study uh, gathering here. Is it 6 o'clock? Anybody? Six? Six? Starts at 6. Earl? 10 o'clock. Church? Church, uh, 10 o'clock, yeah. Yeah. Good question. All right, let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for that rain and uh, the reminder of your magnificence and... and uh, we're grateful for the, the book of Revelation and just the ideas that it brings forward and your glory and your power and your hand over this world and this earth and those who trust in you uh, being made light uh, versus basking in darkness. And so we're grateful for these, these things that you show us as we study your word. We pray for people on this list. We pray for Lonnie Brock for healing, the doctor to determine what is wrong, for Daniel Gray for strength, uh, to increase in faith and belief for Diana to recover. She broke her leg and help her keep her from uh, infection for Matt and his broken leg and pray that he will be able to recover fully. 
for Grace Morrison, baby Grace Morrison, cancer and her coming treatment. We pray for her. Uh, we pray for the wife of baby Grace who is severely depressed. And we just pray for each other, Lord. Lift each other up in the different places we are, the different sorrows that we feel in our hearts and in our lives, the concerns, the woes. Help us now as we exit from here that the spirit of hope, the spirit of love uh, will, bear, will be with us as we uh, move forward into the week and engage with other people who may or may not know you. Open our mouths when it's right to share the good news and to share the glories of what you've done in our lives. Equip us with the words to say. Help us to relax in your spirit and to uh, trust in you with all of our hearts. We love you and need you, and we do worship you. And, uh, and pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. But cry.